there's a little bit of this idea that, well, if you share it and, and if you're open, that that's really good. You have to experience this to actually believe it. Have you ever thought about where the ideas for search on the web came from? It turns out that Google actually has some antecedents in the way research in physical libraries take place. But there's a wall you hit when you search for academic information on the web, works with authority and a semblance of quality, with a great deal of useful research often hidden behind paywalls, decentralized sources like Wikipedia have taken their place on a large scale, in spite of the fact that they tend to be less effectively organized and often questioned. How might the library of the future, a well-organized, high-quality, and open one, look? Kevin Kelly is a journalist and author of the recent book, What Technology Wants. Kevin sat down with David Weinberger to talk about how the search and cataloging methods on the web have their roots in those of physical research libraries, and how openness plays a role. And so the, the very first um, article I ever wrote was for Coevolution Quarterly. And I was working at the University of Georgia in the microbiology department, and I noticed that none of the scientists had ever gone to the library. And I was really curious about where they were getting their information from. And it turned out that this was the era of preprints, and the way you were, the net, way the network worked was you read an article, and the this is before email, you'd call the. Um, PI, the principal investigator, and you asked for a, a preprint or a reprint. And they had file drawers full of these things. And I was, so I was really curious about what the role of libraries in scientific research was. So this article was looking at that. And I went to the libraries, uh, and I started doing some informal surveys. And I also tried to look at the literature to see the usage patterns and to find out that. So I would go into the library, and I would actually take out books at random and look at when they were last checked out. Um, and Chris, this is, it's a, you know, it's kind of a horrifying thing to do because you realize that very few of the books are being checked out at all. I then went on to um, talk to a guy named Eugene Garfield at the Institute for Scientific uh, Research or Informatics, where it was called in Philadelphia, and he was the guy who invented citation indexing. The impact factor was this idea that you could use the weight of various um, journals. Uh, to uh, and, and publications, uh, a paper to determine whether or not um, a particular paper was being um, well received, and then it became kind of a de facto ranking for tenure committees and stuff. Which he was always Eugene Garfield was always against the, the use of that because he said it was not made for that. It was made to identify hot spots in scientific research. But this citation indexing is basically was rediscovered by Larry Page and Sergey Brin as PageRank. So they did the same thing that Eugene Garfield was doing with um, scientific articles, looking at the footnotes to find out who referenced, who cited that particular paper after it was published and working backwards to find these centers, uh, hubs of activity of, of citation and giving higher weights to some journals because they were being referenced and cited the most. Um, and so what Brennan uh, Page did was basically do the same thing for the web and web links and use that then as a, an assist in you know, finding things. Now, I went to talk to Eugene Garfield about this was pre-Google, and I, I, I made a little pilgrimage to his offices in Philadelphia. 
because ISI uh, and their citation indexing was not on the emerging web at all. They, they had this closed system. It's kind of like dialogue version where you had to log in, proprietary thing. And I, and I was saying, I don't, I don't understand why you're not on the web, why, why this isn't open, why you haven't imported all this stuff. And, you know, the usual reasons were business reasons, uh, you know, like we're not sure how we can make money that way. And we have a nice business as it is. And who's going to fund the future, future research, et cetera. But it was very clear to me that um, – I was just sort of as you know, as an outside observer and as a person using Alta Vista, <laughs> realizing, hey, there's there's a lot here that could be done, uh, bringing some of the things that you guys know into into the world of the web. So the story is is that it was invented in libraries. This, he was a library science. This was library science, and they had um, library science knew a lot about finding things and. Um, relative weights and, 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 and how things are connected, but they never made the transition to the web. They kind of missed they missed that, and it was unfortunate because I always felt that, that, that there was a lot more in library science that could have made that transition over into the web. Do you have an, an idea why they resisted the web or failed to see it as a, a fulfillment of what they had been aiming at? I... I can I, I I think from from the accomplishment of what Garfield done with current contents was his other thing, which was a really ingenious publication that actually made the most money. What he did was he took a he took the table of contents of all the scientific journals and re, and reproduced them into a, a booklet that went out weekly. And uh, my friends, the scientists, would sit at home in bed and they would page through basically the table of contents of all the scientific journals. Um, and I, I, th- I think it was so difficult to make money in the library science that I think they, they found something that worked and they were really afraid of kind of turning it over into this emerging gift economy that was very new to everybody and very unproven at the time. And I think they... The idea of letting go, of, of sort of putting this into the wild, of surrendering it, was just not in the DNA of people who spend a, many years battling against forces to actually make something that could make it that could make money in, in library science. Other than what could be um, very important sort of business hesitations that you have a working model and you business model and you go out on the web, you don't know what's going to work. Frequently, nobody knows what's going to work. Um, what are the, in your sense, what what is the assumptions that um, sort of the, the cognitive uh, difficulties that prevent have prevented people from making the switch from um, systems that understand knowledge and information pretty well, but within a closed environment and the yeah. throwing it open? I mean, I, I think you know, in 2011, as we look back. There are lots of things that seem very obvious to us now that, that really did not seem so obvious 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Um, I mean, I, I, I just keep pointing to Wikipedia. I was a doubter. You know, when Newpedia came along and, and, you know, I was trying it out, it was like, this is like, this is not, you know, this is not going to work. This is the forerunner. This is the forerunner where they even had more peer review. And it, well, that was why it wasn't working because it still had to be peer review. But this idea of anybody can edit, it's completely open. I have to tell you, this is not intuitive. There's, 
There, there, almost everything we've been taught about in school and about human nature says that this is not going to work. And I think there's there's a little bit of this idea that, well, if you share it and, and if you're open, that that's really good. You have to experience this to actually believe it. There was every sense that this was something that you would lose control of and have no means to, to earn money and that, and, and that it would be sort of anarchic and disruptive and chaotic and all these things. And I, I, I think this has been the great um, sea change in our culture is, is that we have a whole bunch of people like you and I and, and millions of other people who actually now believe that, um, that this openness and sharing, the kind of a gift economy, that all these things are actually the, the, the fundamental home of culture rather than sort of a, a, a crazy utopian idea. And, and, and that, in fact, that, that we believe that this is sort of the natural place for culture to live, I think that this is this is one of the great achievements of this generation. Not not that we ever kind of consciously engineered it, but the, the fact that, that we've sort of pressed on this and have developed it as far as it can. I think in future generations will say that you know that that was an amazing thing that they sort of discovered back then, which was that you could have these systems based on. Um, Share trust that would maybe have the default of open and trust, and that that's um, that was that's the big thing. So I think we've we've gone through a big leap and not really been aware of how big a leap we are. Now, the, the Britannica's uh, marketing claim used to be they used to market the fact that uh, every article goes through five hundred. I can't remember five hundred sixty-five steps is some fi- in the five hundreds. The, the, the all of course by professional editors, and this was their guarantee of quality and to. To take away that claim and replace it with the Wikipedia claim is just, you know, would have been completely unthinkable, ludicrously unthinkable. Actually, you've provoked something. I bet you the typical number of edit changes is probably 500. Uh, it's, if not more. Right. Yeah. So it's probably, we probably requires the same number of edits. It's just that who's doing it. <laughs> so we go from a time when um, we have this ingenious method for waiting seeing the weight of journals and of the articles within them by looking at the citations made by scientists who are citing one to another. Um, and it becomes apparently occasionally somewhat corrupt, but you know, still, there you are. And then you have uh, Google, which gets very close to um, weighting things on the basis of readers. Now, it's not quite, but the line between readers and writers is so thin now that it, it's as if the weighting goes towards readers, and it too, of course, becomes corrupt it, with spammers and the rest of it, and Google bombing. And what's the price? We have now the readers who are weighing in. We used to have the professional experts. Is there a price, or is this all goodness? No, I, I think there's a price. And let me just sort of preface and, and say that I, the, the way I accord the power of a, of a technology, in part by how powerfully it can be abused. So. Uh, technology is not powerful unless it can be powerfully abused. And our dear internet, which is probably one of the most powerful technologies we've ever invented, will be powerfully abused. And it's, it will be abused in the same, using the same kind of tools that, that bring it greatness. What's the dark side or the downside to, to all this? And I, and I, and, and, and I would say that um, I think the idea of having a kind of a completely flat, 
adhocracy, things loosely connected at the bottom, is there's several there's several powerful things about it. One is that um, it seems to always get us further than we thought it possibly could. This kind of decentralized bottom work, we're constantly being surprised about how far we could go. Look at the Wikipedia. I think it's no coincidence that the kind of appreciation of Darwinian evolution came along with the internet. Of course, that's what my first book was about, showing that there's actually a parallel. We can now appreciate how far in history, history of life, this this decentralized kind of headless power has brought us all the things we see in in life around us. Now, of course, the, th- the downside there is it takes biological time, to con- it takes evolutionary time to accomplish a lot of this stuff. And we're kind of using the technology of the internet to accelerate the same kind of processes. And we're constantly being surprised about how much they can do with, you know, say Flickr pools or, you know, Twitter feeds and things. And, and, and we, we realize, oh, my gosh, we can, we, we can do far more than we thought we could. But I believe that unstructured... Um, uncontrolled power alone is not going to get to where we want to go. So the, the the kind of ideal library, the ideal encyclopedia that we want, I don't believe is possible to, to be made by this process of you can edit anything anytime and that's it. I mean, only that raw decentralized power by itself. What's happening to Wikipedia and all the other things we're doing is we're gradually adding higher levels of hierarchical structure, organization, permissions, authority, all kinds of things. And, and that, is, I think, is inevitable and good. I, I don't believe and I don't advocate the, the, this idea that the solution to get what we want to get is to simply make it perfectly flat and horizontal and completely democratic in that kind of vernacular sense. Uh, I, I, don't, I think that is get us further than we thought. And secondly, it's always probably the best place to start. You start there because you can go so far so fast. But as you go along, you begin to accumulate and develop other higher levels of organization and structure. And a lot of those levels, hierarchy or not, it's not a hierarchy of rank, it's a hierarchy of time. Okay, So uh, it's it's like in a corporation, people complain about the hierarchy, but the hierarchy is really about time. So you have a lot of people who are concerned about getting things done in the next hour or the next day or this week. You have other people who are kind of taking a month view or looking at monthlies, and then you have higher levels, and hopefully you get to the executive level, and they're thinking about not what's happening tomorrow but what's happening five years out and ten years. That's the, that's the ideal hierarchical structure. You want to have um, systems that are anticipating longer and longer time horizons, and, and that requires increasing structure. So I think the downside to this kind of openness is that it's not going to get us what we want. And it may even produce some things that we don't want. I think the the remedy is to um, accumulate and to develop more structures that, in, that have some of this top-down organizational stuff. But to do it in a way that it's that that you can remain as adaptable and as flexible as possible. So it's, it's kind of a trade-off, and this is what we see in life. There's, there's a constant um, 
trade-off and where you put your resources, I think we'll constantly be surprised by what we can accomplish in a completely open, flat, decentralized way. It's a good place to start, but that over time to remedy the, the, the downsides, which is kind of, you know, volatility, increasing volatility, oscillations, by corruption by gaming, uh, the list is long. Besides the fact that there's going to be kind of, you know, very deliberate uh, subversion of it with organized crime and we can go into all this kinds of stuff. So th- we, we need to protect, you need to have levels of protection and anticipation and that requires more structure and organization and more closeness in, in, in this dichotomy than just having everything completely open. If you take a look at Wikipedia, um, I completely agree. I mean, one of the reasons, I think one of the most remarkable things about it and the reason why it succeeded was that it um, decided early that it's not a social experiment. It's trying to build the world's greatest encyclopedia. And if that requires setting up a hierarchy, then that's what you do. It's intensely pragmatic and non-ideological in that sense. Um, and so you, as, as you say, you end up with um, uh, some degree of hierarchy, but it tends to be the hierarchy that is actually called forth that is required by a group that would prefer to have as much openness as works. Mm-hmm. So here's, here's something that I worry about. Because right now, I think Wikipedia is in, in um, a wonderful position in history. But one of the lessons that seems to be the case in, uh, from, from life is that hierarchical hierarchies persist past their utility because there are lots of venal human reasons why people who are in positions of power like to maintain them. That seems to be fairly persistent through human history. Is in 10, 15, 20 years, is Wikipedia going to be a stuffy, oversized, over, you know, hierarchy with, with uh, old men and women in it who want to preserve their power and are squeezing out? Is it, is it, is everything subject to that sort of uh, law of human corruption? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think there is there is a there is a way in which these you know bureaucratic impulses to protect the system as it is against change, um, and Peter principle of you know kind of fulfill, filling whatever available resources it is just to main, just to keep the your bureaucracy going. I, I think that those are absolute temptations, and Wikipedia. While I think it is improving, I think it is subject to, 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 to those things. And so the question is, how do, we, um, how do we engineer things so that they're in constant evolution and revolution? And um, this, by the way, is no different than most companies. They have the same exact issue. They're wonderful startups, and as they grow, growth demands – I mean, it's, first of all, it's just harder to grow as you get bigger because the, the scale gets so big. But secondly, um, it's hard to resist that kind of bureaucratic uh, impediment. And um, the solution for companies seems to be <laughs> you grow and die, you know? I mean, this is Jeffrey West's work at, at Santa Fe Institute showing that, that companies um, behave like biological organisms and that they have an S-curve of growth. And he can tell you – he can tell right now and predict exactly when Google will die because it will die. Cities and um, ecologies have a super scale, and that means that as they grow, as the bigger cities get, the denser they get, the more crime they have per, per capita, the more wealth they have per capita, they have more of everything per capita. And 
there's no, there's no limit to them. So the question do we want to ask about Wikipedia is, is it more like a corporation that will have a finite bureaucratic death that's not, that's not getting better as it gets bigger, or is it more like a city that it's actually getting better as it gets bigger? There actually may be some metrics that we could actually look at to see um, whether it's getting better as it gets bigger or whether it's sort of, you know, because in corporations, as they get bigger, the revenue per employees does not continue to accelerate. So we have to think about some metrics to look at in Wikipedia to see whether or not, I don't know what the, the unit would be, but it's that it's actually improving. Uh, it's a really fascinating way of looking at it and raises all sorts of questions about what what should you look for if if it's a city, I mean, you might look at the increase in the number of articles, which seems not to be what you primarily want to look at, um, the currency of articles, or uh, some measure of uh, innovation. Is it number of links between articles? The maybe the number of edits per time or per view. I'd like to see it more semantically organized yes. myself, so that it can have a larger effect in the on the web so people can we, we've just gone through a, a difficult exercise with some success um, right. of trying to f- do something very simple in Wikipedia which is to find every uh, book that has its own article in Wikipedia not every oh. author not every but you know there's right, a right, book, there's a page right, for right, of right, mice and men right 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 it is not easy to do it's not arranged for that sort of query but increasingly Wikipedia um, so this is another sort of measure, I think. Right. But increasingly, Wikipedia is becoming the place that links point to when they want to be unambiguous about what they're pointing at. Right. Right. So if I'm going to uh, blog about Kevin Kelly, it's right. very. Li- I'm either going to point to your homepage or to your Wikipedia article, and increasingly, it's the Wikipedia article. Exactly. And playing that sort of role, that that's something that actually reorganizes the territory around the city. That's. Um, right. Right. Uh, and at the moment, it's not particularly well suited for that, except that it's so rich in content. But it wasn't thought about in that way. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's um, one can can then kind of say, well, our library is more like companies or cities. And I've always talked about this library. So we're building the clock. The, the original clock library was a clock slash library, and the idea was that you build this clock that would. Tick once a year, talk every century, and every thousand years a cuckoo would come out to remind us to think long term. And the idea was that adjoining or even part of some essential inside it was a library. So while the clock was running down, the way I put it, the library was running up. That you have uh, the idea of a library is this open ended, self organizing system, ideally. And, th- and that's to me. The ideal of a library is a self-organizing system in the sense that it is accruing, increasing complexity and organization over time. Unlike a clock or any other kind of mechanical thing, which will over time run down with entropy or become fragmented, broken, whatever. But libraries, under conventional view, are... Um, highly non-self-organizing, yeah. and they don't get either com- more complex or bigger over time. They do if you include the library community, perhaps. Right. But libraries t- have been physical spaces. They only hold so many volumes. They don't get bigger. They just get new content, and stuff gets thrown out. And there has not been a lot of room in the physical library for increasing complexity because things there's limited ways of laying out 
shelves. Right. And, and, and I think that's been true because of the physical nature of books. But as books becomes intangible and disembodied, I think the true nature of a library can be expressed, which is that it is not just a depository of information, but actually is the, the means. It actually is the engine in which knowledge is generated. And, um, you know, we, we have hints of that with the web and the way that the web itself is, in some ways, there is a copy of it. There is a, there is a big pool of knowledge, but at the same time, it's also, in many ways, uh, becoming more so every day, the engine in, in which new ideas are made and new knowledge is made. And, um, and, you know, and to sort of the, the ideal library, in my mind, is something closer to what we have with the web rather than a stack of books in, in an office. And if we take that expanded view of uh, the library as something that's much more active, much more dynamic, as an engine rather than as an archive, um, w- what's happening is is that the engine itself is, is creating the new knowledge, which then takes back into itself and uses that new knowledge to create yet more knowledge, and you have this open-ended, living-like enterprise. That's what libraries want. No. Well, yeah, that's what I libraries mean, want. That's <laughs> what librarians, I think, have wanted. That's what well, librarians, but I think that's actually, I think that's actually what a library wants. I think, I mean, if you were a library, would you rather be a bunch of books on a shelf, or would you rather be this engine creating, creating value and knowledge and and exotropy? And I think that um, libraries have the potential. Um, now, I, I want to be very clear that I don't think that means that they only have to be disembodied, and that there is no right role for paper, which. Because I don't believe it. I think no. You, you've actually been writing recently yeah. about the, the need to have to preserve specimen books. Exactly um, right. So, so I, I think the idea of having this incredibly universal technology of recording on paper is a part of that. But, but, but the, the the larger library as a whole, I believe, is something where it's a engine of knowledge wherever it's recorded, whether it's digitally or paper, um, and that. Most of the people working on the universal libraries are, of course, not librarians. Uh, and, and, and I fear this is like going back to the story about Eugene Garfield, the library scientist who invented Citation Index, just missed that emerging web thing. And I think librarians have to be sure not to miss this creation of this kind of larger global library that's happening right now. And, and um, some of you know, I, I, I know librarians, and most of them understand Stand this, but it's still a big step to have their supporters and everyone else kind of. Yeah, so we get to, at the lab, we have to hang out with librarians who understand this really deeply. But they're institutional. Um, they're institutional. This is also back to the question of of the um, reification. Or, the wrong word, but uh, institutions getting settled and um, not being able to uh, tear themselves apart enough right. to enable a fruitful openness. Yeah. So. If I was to, you know, have to make up some scenarios about the future of library, I think some of the most positive ones would would involve outsiders, be it Google-ish or Wikipedia-ish type entities, actually doing most of the hard heavy lifting and becoming kind of the the new the new libraries. And and also, I think it's no coincidence that okay, here we are speaking in a library in a university that there there is there has been a long pairing of universities 
and libraries. And I don't think that that's a coincidence that the two were, were so tightly married. And I believe, too, that whatever comes after universities is also going to be deeply tied into the future of, libra- of the library. And, that, 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 and again, that this distinction that we have between um, learning and learning is going to <laughs> be completely eroded. And that learning and learning will say, oh, yeah, yeah, it's the same thing. So the end of universities, now you've gone too far. (laughs) Well, no, what's after universities? And this is something that, 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 you know, universities are fairly recent. They've played a very instrumental, profound role in uh, Western civilization. But um, they're the culture of the book. They revolve around the culture of the book. And hello, we're now people of the screen. We're now... No longer people of the book. We're people of the screen. We've moved to the screens. And um, the universities have to sort of – they're still important, but I think there will be something after universities. I don't know what that is. I really don't. But it, it is a library. It, it, it's, it's a bigger it's, – it's a community of learning. And actually I heard a term just the other day that I thought was really um, cool. And it was the idea that of having uh, – the ideal way to learn with, with a small group of like-minded people and, and your peers. And so you, it wasn't soul learning. It wasn't learning in a classroom. It wasn't learning as in a buddy system. It was a peer group learning. And facilitating this kind of peerage learning, I think, um, again, this is where the new technology is, and, and um, something like that could be the future of the university where you maybe one of, you know, have enthusiasts who are, set out to actually learn something together. This kind of, again, it, it has echoes of what universities began as, and in theory that's what was going on, but we can maybe reinvigorate some of that idea of, of a bunch of people setting off to um, learn on a, on a journey together. Thank you very much, Kevin. Sure, sure. Kevin Kelly is a journalist and author of the recent book, What Technology Wants. You can find him on the web at kk.org. Library Lab, the podcast, was brought to you by the Harvard Library Innovation Lab at Harvard Law School. Theme music comes from Creative Commons licensed artist Brad Sucks, who you can find at bradsucks.net. We're continuing to interview a number of innovators, scholars, and publishers about the future of the written word. If you like this episode, why not follow along with us at librarylab.law.harvard.edu, where you can find out more about our work, including info on today's guest, join a discussion, and share this podcast with others. You can also find today's podcast, as well as all the previous episodes, now available in MP3 and AUG formats and subscribable in iTunes. This show was produced by me, Daniel Dennis-Jones, and David Weinberger with the support of the Harvard Law School. 